Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for August 29, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The OIG fires a warning shot across the bow of Medicare Advantage organizations. The message? Stop denying prior authorization. Stop denying claims. CMS agrees and issues new guidance for medical necessity. From New York, Dennis Jones reports our lead story. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report this morning, and we begin, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week saw the release of another OIG audit on a Medicare Advantage plan. As a reminder, the OIG often audits the diagnoses submitted to CMS as HCCs that influence the monthly payment they receive from CMS for each patient. And as you have heard, they often find the MA plans are submitting many unsubstantiated diagnoses resulting in significant overpayments into the tens of millions of dollars. Well, in this audit, the OIG found that Cigna's Florida MA plan called HealthSpring had a 4% error rate. That is outrageously good. In another report from another MA plan um, last year, they found an 82% error rate as a comparison. But yet Cigna was not satisfied with this result because even with these results, the the OIG tried to extrapolate the results and that added up. So Cigna submitted a 33-page rebuttal criticizing almost every part of the audit including the sample size and, of course, the use of extrapolation. Then they even jumped the shark and criticized CMS for the Kwashiorkor diagnosis fiasco several years ago, for the way CMS mapped sepsis as an HCC, and for CMS's policy of not allowing documentation from a home health agency or DME supplier to be used for diagnosis validation purposes. Sorry about the noise in the background. My dog is getting a drink. Now, I found this rebuttal to be unnecessarily harsh, but, you know, it worked. The OIG actually determined extrapolation was not warranted and that the overpayment, instead of being $10 million, was only $39,000. Now, speaking of Medicare Advantage, we're fast approaching the deadline to submit comments to CMS about improving the MA plan program, and comments are pouring in. For fun, I took some time and read some of them. As you'd expect, I submitted my comment on day one. My comment, I took up the theme that it was echoed by many others, the lack of consistent standards for determining admission status for MA patients and the lack of discharge appeal rights for MA patients stuck in observation for days on end. But there were many other topics. Many commented on the delays imposed by MA plans to get approval for post-acute care, how that hinders full recovery and adds risk of developing a hospital-acquired infection. Many beneficiaries wrote about their difficulties accessing necessary services with onerous prior authorization processes and limited provider networks. Physicians from a wide range of practices complained about their inability to treat the patients as they felt was medically indicated due to prior authorization or restrictive formularies. 
The post-acute providers themselves also submitted many comments on the MA plan's unwillingness to approve more than a few days at a time and then requiring the submission of onerous amounts of clinical information. There, and there were a surprising number of comments from the New York City government retirees who are being forced into MA plans and are not happy about it. But by far my favorite comment came from someone who did not identify themselves, but stated, Medicare disadvantage was designed to suck original Medicare dry and eventually kill it, making it all private so every claim but your stupid free gym membership gets denied. You know, it's kind of hard to disagree with that comment. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Like many other days, today I'm talking about undue process. If you are like me, you've read way too many articles on rack audits. They all start the same. These articles tell you when the rack audit program started, what rack stands for, how much money it saves. As an aside, 20 years ago, after I was at the Attorney General's office prosecuting providers, I was getting ready for an interview by a local news anchor. I was not a partner at my law firm. I was a baby lawyer, and my partner told me not to use the word rack in interviews. He said it made people think about women derogatorily. <laughs> I can't even say that. Going back to rack audits, and notice I do say rack. These articles that protest to be so enlightening are not enlightening. Like I said, these articles tell you when the rack program started and how great it is, but they shield the truth. They shield the fact that the RAC audit program is skewed against providers. These audits are like Hercules pushing up his rock for providers. Let me give you some examples. Number one, prepayment review. The prepayment review process puts at least 50% of providers out of business. Number two, the Medicare audit process. You finally get to an ALJ, and the other side doesn't even show up to give an argument why they're right. Yet you can still lose because the ALJs have to follow CMS rules, which are not created by Congress, but by a bureaucracy. Number three, extrapolations. Need I say more? Number four, the burden of undergoing audits in and of itself. You have to open your door to a stranger, having that stranger have no care about HIPAA, and having to make so many copies that you forget to make yourself a copy, and your copy machine dies. After understanding what Medicare and Medicaid providers have to endure, it is no wonder that a third of doctors refuse to accept Medicaid, and a quarter refuse Medicare. Not only does Medicaid pay out less, but doctors encounter more billing problems. About 19% of the initial claims submitted to Medicaid are not paid in full. For Medicare and for private insurers, that share is much lower, 8% and 5% respectively. If you're only paid 80% of your salary, would you take Medicaid? This is a decision that providers have to make every day. And sadly, many providers decide that accepting Medicaid 
is not worth the burden. But I thank you, listeners, because if you're listening to Rack Monitor, you probably do accept Medicare and Medicaid. Thank you. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, who's sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright, and Dennis Jones, who's standing by in New York to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's August the 29th. And you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Too many regulatory changes, too many auditors, too many instances where if you're not up to date, it could get your facility an audit. These are tough times for providers, and the outlook on the audit landscape is frightening. Now, more than ever, this is the time, and Rack Monitor is the place for you to subscribe to the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. Your team will benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory topics. Subscribe now to the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. Remain compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks for as little as $3,600 for a single subscriber. That's right. Receive all the latest regulatory and audit news for as little as $3,600 when you subscribe to the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. Subscribe today. Here now with a Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, good morning, Chuck. I think it's thinking that you need to treat the past and the future the same way. So last week I mentioned that people often assume that if you decide a practice is problematic enough that you're going to cease it prospectively, you automatically need to make a refund for your past billings. But that's not true. To help highlight the analysis, it may be useful to consider an analogy. Let's say that you've been lax about making employees arrive on time, but patients are starting to complain about delays in the schedule, so you decide from this day forward, you're going to be a stickler for the schedule. You tell all of your employees that from now on, they need to arrive on time. You're no longer tolerating tardiness. Does the fact that you're changing things going forward mean you have to discipline them for the past? Of course not. Now, admittedly, Billing issues are a bit different, and sometimes analogies can be inapplicable. But I think this one works. Remember that under the 60-day statute or rule, refunds are required only when you know that you've received money you're not entitled to. Because so many billing rules are poorly drafted, and because much of the guidance is supplied by documents like local coverage determinations and the Medicare manuals, which which, as we've discussed on past broadcasts, aren't binding, It's routine to have a situation where someone might argue you've been overpaid, but there's considerable uncertainty. In those situations, you don't have knowledge that you've been overpaid and a refund is not required. Perhaps the quintessential example of this would be the discovery that there's a local coverage determination that you've been previously unaware of. Now, we've talked about this a bunch of times, but people still have a hard time believing that local coverage determinations are not binding. We know it from the Acera Care case, which arose in Alabama and then the 11th Circuit and was a hospice case where the uh, Court of Appeals determined that the LCD didn't establish a, a rule that had to be followed by the practice. But perhaps more tellingly, I prepared a lengthy, lengthy presentation explaining LCDs are not binding I was giving it to some U.S. attorneys, and I was loaded for bear. About four sentences in, 
the U.S. attorneys interrupted me to say they agreed. I wanted to believe that I was doing a great job presenting my argument, but they had already concluded that the fact that LCDs are not binding. I think this is now reaching the point of fairly widespread acceptance. It should have done that years ago, but we're getting there. Now, nevertheless, some organizations might choose to follow an LCD, but voluntarily complying with a provision that you are not required to follow does not obligate you to refund on your past billings. The fact that you determine a particular course of conduct is preferential for one reason or another doesn't mean that all other approaches are inherently illegal or improper. So when you do elect to change your practice, you're gonna to wanna to monitor your word choice carefully. I never talk about complying with an LCD. Instead, I'll say something like, we're choosing to defer to it. One of the best risk management tools available to you is making sure you don't mischaracterize an option as a requirement. Similarly, you don't want to characterize something as a requirement when it's merely your policy. We often do that because we think it's helpful to scare people into following our policy, and so we want to puff the policy up into a rule. Now, I always think that Sarah Bareilles is sneezing when she says it, but it turns out her song isn't a chew you. It's I choose you. And when you choose a particular approach voluntarily, make sure that everyone knows you're exercising your free will. to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. So, Tiffany, what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Good morning, all. I'm going to report on last week when CMS announced that it was expanding its Medicaid Money Follows the Person demonstration program, which apparently has provided billions to seniors and people with disabilities to safely transition from institutional care to homes and back to their communities. I must say I had not heard of this program and thus was surprised that it was even being expanded. So apparently the demonstration started as a pilot in 2006. It kicked off with a full demonstration effort, which ran from 2008 to 2020 to support home and community-based services and reduce the use of institutional-based care. During that time, more than 107,000 transitions were made out of institutional settings and back into communities or less restrictive environments. Many of the states have selected their own name for this funding, which may be the, why it has such a lack of recognition. Many states have modeled the initial program that the MFP demonstrated call, and created and called it Finding Home, or Our Community, Our Place. There's lots of different names of it that you can see. In the Consolidation Appropriations Act of 2021, an additional $5 million was awarded to states that were not previously participating in this program to access MFP funds, which ran through the state's government offices. These programs remove restrictions for Medicaid members to receive support for appropriate and necessary long-term 
services and support people in the settings of their choice to secure stable housing and reduce the risk of institutionalization, which includes unnecessary hospitalizations. On May, uh, excuse me, on March 31st, 2022, the program was expanded to current MFP grantees that they will receive an increased reimbursement for their services with zero cost state cost sharing requirements. Yes, free federal money to support Medicaid members for community-based housing support services. Then last week, an additional 25 million, 5 million per awarded state was given to expand programs in Illinois, Kansas, New Hampshire, American Samoa, and Puerto Rico. The funds will go towards establishing planning partnerships with community stakeholders, conducting assessments to better understand how HCBS supports residents, developing community transition programs, and enhancing HCBS quality initiatives, and recruiting additional staff and technology to support the infrastructure of these programs. So to date, there are 41 states and territories, as I mentioned some above, um, participating in this program, which is funded through 2025. I've included the details and link that will come out in my article this week. Please check out on the link and select the Awarded Grantees tab to see if your state is participating, who your contact is, and what are the requirements that are needed for accessing these funds. This all made me think of, if you're familiar with my webcast that I did recently with MedLearn, long-stay hospitalizations, managing the complex patient populations. We discussed what to do with complex patients that have multiple ED utilization or long-stay hospitalizations. Upon researching some of these state programs, it appears that this is a program that hospital and outpatient community-based case management programs should be aware of and could potentially access to support their complex patient population. So I ask our listeners today, were any of you familiar with or have you utilized your state-run Money Follows the Person program? Yes, I was already aware of this program, or no, this program is new to me. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And we'll have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Money Legislative Update with Kate Brantley. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zellis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zellis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright is Kate Brandley. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Chuck. So as promised, today we're jumping into the FAQs related to the No Surprises Act final rule released last week. Just as a quick reminder, the rule deals with the arbitration process between payers and providers on out-of-network claim reimbursement. But first, let's actually take a look at some of the reactions to last week's final rule. Interestingly enough, there hasn't publicly been a lot of reaction. We're still waiting to see what the plaintiffs in the lawsuit surrounding this issue will do. One thing we do have, however, is a statement from the American Society of Anesthesiologists expressing their disappointment with the rule, stating that it, quote, fails to protect patient access to providers, and still allows insurers to profit at patient and provider expense. They noted that they're mulling over what their next move will be in court, so expect to see an update on that litigation soon. 
Turning to the FAQs that accompanied the final rule, they addressed several key issues building off of previously released guidance in addition to the new rule. Topics include initial payments, disclosures and open negotiation, payment denials, how the NSA applies to no network plans and those that use reference-based pricing, what to do with plans that don't provide out-of-network coverage at all, and how the NSA works with behavioral health emergencies and air ambulance non-emergencies. The guidance also interestingly dedicates a question to clarifying that insurers who vary contracted rates based on specialties have to calculate a separate median contracted rate for each specialty. Some providers have been worried that despite the NSA directing that calculations of median and network rates be based on payment data from similar specialties, the insurers might calculate their median and network rates for specialty services using primary care provider rates. This would artificially lower that median in-network rate, which in turn would lower the qualifying payment amount that is a significant factor in the arbitrator's decision. The guidance attempts to get ahead of this potentially um, happening by definitively laying out the methodology for calculating these amounts for specialties. In addition to the FAQs, CMS also released a set of three videos walking through something we've talked about quite a bit on this program, the Process for Independent Dispute Resolution, or IDR. The videos even include an hour-long tutorial on using the federal IDR portal to initiate reimbursement disputes. CMS noted common mistakes they're seeing throughout this process so far, which includes things like incorrectly batching cases, not providing accurate contact information, and failing to include the qualifying payment amount provided with an initial payment or denial of payment. All of this guidance has been released in the hopes of improving both efficiency and speed of going through this arbitration process. This is much needed because according to the recently released update on the federal IDR process, the departments have run into a few operating issues in the short five months the portal has been open. Firstly, there has just been a totally unexpected number of disputes initiated, over 46,000 between opening day of April 15th to the report cutoff date of August 11th. Among those disputes, over 21,000 were challenged as ineligible for the federal IDR process. Ineligibility could be found due to a number of factors, including jurisdictional issues, incorrect batching and bundling of claims, completed open negotiations, and more. However, when eligibility is challenged, someone has to decide whether that challenge has merit or not, which slows down the entire process. CMS is hoping that with all of this additional guidance and a little bit more time, disputing parties will help them help themselves, so to speak, to get the federal IDR portal operating smoothly and as intended as we move into fall. So, Chuck, although we've been given a wealth of information in the last few weeks on this particular aspect of the NSA, the departments aren't done. They specifically noted in these releases that this rule was purposely narrow in scope to strictly the IDR process. We can expect to see them very busy with future rulemaking on other aspects of the NSA, and we promise to keep you updated. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is substituting this morning for Matthew Allwright. Kate is a legislative affairs analyst for Zealous. Now is the time for the results of the day's Modern Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Let's take a look at the results. So I asked our listeners, were any of you familiar with or have you utilized your state-run Money Follows the Person program? And you guys were right in line with where I was, which is the majority of our participants, uh, resounding, you know, 91% said, no, this program is new to me. Uh, I agree. So I would say, you know, check out, 
my article this week, I'll give some more details, especially how you can qualify for long-stay hospitalizations to access these funds uh, for additional support in getting patients out of the hospital that are complex. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Timothy, very much for your survey. And coming up, the warning shot heard around the compliance world. Standing by with this exclusive story is Dennis Jones. He's in New York. Even as the public health emergency continues and patient volumes are disrupted, the evaluation and management essentials will assist you in staying on top of rules and guidelines to ensure compliant charges and capturing full compliant payment evaluation and management services. This time-tested resource is ideal for coders, audit and compliance staff, physicians, clinic staff, and others. It's designed to clear up the confusion and instill confidence in confronting many changes. And here's a special offer. When you pre-order your 2023 E&M Essentials book before August 31st, which is this Wednesday, you'll receive the digital book free. That's right. Pre-order your 2023 E&M Essentials book before August 31st and get the digital book free. The E&M Essentials book with this amazing offer is now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Our lead story this morning is about the warning shot fired across the bow of managed care organizations by the OIG. Enough warned the OIG in a report to CMS, and CMS agreed and issued new guidance and other changes. Here now reporting our lead story from New York is Dennis Jones. Good morning, Dennis. Dennis, CMS issued some new guidance several weeks ago, but what do we really need to know? Thank you, Chuck. Well, there, there is a lot to know. Um, first, I must give props to Nina Youngstrom who wrote a comprehensive analysis of the newly amended CMS Part C and D Enrollee Grievances Organization Coverage Determination and Appeals Guidance in a recent report on Medicare compliance. Nina's story was cited by Dr. Ron Hirsch in the Rack Relief Group on Google. Last Monday morning, I was eating my frosted mini-wheats and reading my Gmail when I saw Dr. Hirsch's comments and a link to Nina's article. Now I'm telling everyone I know about these important changes to the Medicare Managed Care Manual. How did we survive before the Internet? In its opening statement to the April 27, 2022 report titled, Some Medicare Advantage Organization Denials of Prior Authorization Requests Raise Concerns About Beneficiary Access to Medically Necessary Care, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General states a central concern about the capitated payment model used in Medicare Advantage is the potential incentive for Medicare Advantage organizations to deny beneficiary access to services and deny payments to providers in an attempt to increase profits. I'll pause for a second while you all recover from the shock of that insightful statement. While CMS recovered from their initial shock and agreed with the recommendations, that CMS issue new guidance on the appropriate use of Medicare Advantage organizations' clinical criteria for medical necessity reviews and to update its audit protocols to address the issues identified in the report. CMS has now followed through on those recommendations in an August 3, 2022 update to the Medicare Managed Care Manual with numerous revisions to the Part C and D Enrollee Grievances Organization Coverage Determinations and Appeals Guidance. If you are a provider who is often frustrated by the complicated and often contradictory 
authorization, denial, and appeal practices of your local Medicare managed care payers, and you page through the over 100 pages of the Part C and D enrollee grievances, organization, coverage determinations, and appeal guidance, you are sure to find something that addresses your issues. The clarification and guidance that immediately got my attention was included in the significant additions to Section 50.1.1, Requirements for Provider Claim Appeals, Part C only. It reads, a non-contracted provider may request that an organization determination be reconsidered by the plan. Even reconsideration requests submitted by non-contracted providers that relate to the type of level of service furnished to the enrollee must be reviewed in accordance with the administrative appeal process outlined in 42 CFR Part 422, Subpart M. That's two internal levels of appeal, followed by an appeal to an administrative law judge, followed by an appeal to the Medicare Appeals Council, followed by a possible hearing in federal district court. According to the first bullet under this statement, diagnosis code slash DRG payment denials a non-contracted provider submits a claim to a plan. The plan initially approves the claim, which is considered a favorable organization determination. The plan later reopens and revises the favorable organization determination and denies the DRG code on the basis that a different DRG code should have been submitted and recoups funds. Wow. It's like a CMS policy wonk was sitting in my office and heard my prayers. I was going to say, heard me crying, but I thought that was too much information. Another common point of provider pain was addressed in the section on prior authorization denials and coverage denials. In the April 2022 report, the OIG noted several examples, many advanced radiology scans, pain injections, physician consults, and post-acute care service requests, where prior authorization was denied for services. The authorization denials were found to be improper because sufficient documentation was provided to prove the need for care. But also, the OIG cited MAOs for applying clinical criteria that were more strict than CMS NCDs for the requested services. The OIG audit found that MAOs improperly denied authorization requests 13% of the time. CMS now clearly states in the amended guidance that MAOs are required to apply Medicare coverage rules when processing preauthorization requests. They may not use clinical criteria that results in preauthorization denials for services that would have been covered under established NCDs for fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries. Although this guidance seems clear at first, you'll probably come up with some important questions when you read this closely, like, how does this guidance impact the site of service denials that I see from adva uh, for advanced radiology services from some MAOs? If prior authorization, if pre-authorization is given by the MAO based on expectation that the patient will require necessary hospital services for at least two midnights, is the payer prohibited from denying or recouping payments based on internal application of inpatient clinical criteria? Medicare requires that accounts that have been discharged and then readmitted on the same day must be combined and paid as one account, but many, many MAOs have denied readmissions for inpatient admissions within 30 days of a previous admission stay. Will this practice now be strictly pro prohibited? 
depending on your own experiences with your own MAOs, I'm sure you'll think of more questions. And any questions that you have may be sent via a questions form that you'll find on https://appeals.lmi.org. Back to you, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Dennis Jones. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the administrator of patient financial services for Montefiore Nyack Hospital in New York. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dennis Jones who recorded our lead story. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Money broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow for another live edition of Tucked In Tuesday at 10 Eastern. That's when we're going to begin our series on the 2023 E&M Code Changes. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.